You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Moritz Sieber and I, Niels Kostoblasen, are back with this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series, which is our weekly ongoing raw exploration of the world of rules-based investing, and of course, where we also take some of your questions. But today, we're going to deviate a bit from our usual format, uh, one, because Jerry's out today, and two, because we are delighted to be joined by a very special guest, namely Corey Hofstein, who really is someone that we have been looking forward to bringing on the show for some time. So... Let me start by saying good morning to you and, and welcome to the show, Corey. Niels, Moritz, ghost of Jerry. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. Hey, Corey. You know, one thing I, yeah, one thing I noticed was, I mean, if you were here in Switzerland with me, you would fit right in with your surname. Is there, are there some, some European, you know, history there or? Well, you know, like, I think like a lot of American families, I don't actually know the whole truth as to the name, the at least family lore. Uh, and as far as we can tell, we have no German in our name, despite in our in our background, despite the surname. Uh, we're pretty much Russian on my father's side. And, and the family lore goes that in Russia at the time, the second son was uh, always conscripted into the army. The family didn't want that to happen and so gave the second son to a German family down the street. And hence, we are Russian by background, but German by last name. Whether there's any truth to that. Absolutely no idea. Wow, that's a story. It's a good story to, yeah, it's a good story to start out with. No. As you may know, uh, Corey, what we normally do uh, on our weekly podcast here is that we normally just run through the markets with kind of the lens of a trend follower. Um, and so once we do that, uh, we'll dive straight into all of our many, many questions that we have from or for you. Um, but at least for the next few minutes, you will be able to enjoy a little bit more of your morning coffee. Now, I want to start slightly different uh, where I normally do when I do this run through of the markets and, and, and people might think, well, has he jumped to the other side? Because this sounds a little bit fundamental, but there are certain things that I picked up this week uh, that I thought uh, was interesting. And in particular from uh, another podcast on Macro Voices uh, with Danielle DiMartino that I thought was really interesting. She's a Fed watcher and uh, as we know, the Fed chooses their words very carefully to say the least. So whenever, whenever they change their terminology, I think investors should pay attention, uh, especially those who are not yet uh, rules-based like we are. But in any event, I want just to bring this to your attention um, and that is that uh, what apparently happened uh, just in the last few days in uh, Chicago at a Fed conference was that they changed the words, uh, you know, quantitative easing, uh, as it was referred to, uh, also large-scale asset purchases, which is, you know, a pretty meaningless term, um, has changed uh, according to to Jay Powell. Uh, in his speech, uh, he kept using a new word uh, called effective lower bound, which apparently replaces the zero lower bound. And and for those who are, uh, you know, Fed watchers, um, they certainly feel that this might indicate that we can now go through the zero and, and essentially go negative. Um, the other thing that happened was, um, you know, now we have a new term for quantitative easing, apparently, and now it's called level policy. Uh, meaning the level of the balance sheet, uh, whether it's going up or down, which is, to me, uh, another 
pretty meaningless term. Um, and then the forward guidance term that they've been using, um, you know, unconventional policy, um, is now being replaced with the the term slope policy, um, which apparently has to do with the, you know, how quickly the balance sheet is either growing or shrinking. So I thought these things were uh, quite interesting just to note, pay attention to, because of course, even though we follow rules, we still pay attention to what happens uh, at these institutions. But what was also quite interesting about what came out of that conference was that uh, there was a paper being presented at the conference, uh, which suggested that had the Fed uh, reduced interest rates uh, back at the last financial crisis to negative 5%, then most of all the damage to the economy could have been avoided. And I thought that's pretty interesting when they bring that out in the context of just changing these terms, uh, especially the one uh, where we no, no longer have zero lower bound, but now we just have effective lower bound. But anyways... Turning back to the markets this week, um, we had a recovery in grains that seems to continue. Energy markets found a bit of support from the heightened tension around Iran in particular and oil tankers being sabotaged or blown up, um, which also gave a lift uh, to the greenback actually. So with this long introduction, Moritz, you're probably completely confused by now, but uh, how was your week from a trend-following lens? <laughs> yeah, I am confused. Never heard you yeah. speak like that. No, exactly. <laughs> what the hell went on? Makes me, makes me feel good about my long bond position in the portfolio. Good. Um, no, but, you know, jokes aside, it's been a good week. Um, up about one and a half percent, which is great. So for the first time now in, in positive territory for the year with the trend-following system, um, equities were kind of like mixed, some pluses, some minuses there, but, you know, the longs and bonds, that has worked well. Um, as you know, I'm short oil now, the Brent and WTI, both on the short side, which was great in the past week. Long gold, that has worked. Long the emissions, great position, still like that one. And pretty much the only setback I, I had was on the, on the, on the currencies with um, the dollar losing some steam here against some of the other positions. But... You know, um, I like the positioning, um, definitely moving a bit more toward the long side overall again and, uh, you know, up more than a percent. So not complaining. Not complaining, not at all. Yeah, I mean, on our side, um, yeah, another pretty solid week, uh, I have to say, a very pretty solid start to the month and the year so far is looking um, very strong, actually. Um, for us, a little bit the same, although ours, our biggest uh, contributor was, was really uh, currencies. Uh, and I think with the sort of, um, you know, uh, weakness in some of the uh, non-dollar currencies in the end toward the end of this week that certainly helped out fixed income still helping out uh from the long side uh other than that it was pretty uh, quiet in terms of pnl attributions um i mean still losing a bit of money in short positions in the grains made a bit of money in silver made a bit of money in coffee but um, yeah energy pretty flat so but I mean, theme-wise, um, nothing's changed uh, pretty much the same. But it is interesting to see that we get more and more of these weeks where we have very decent percentage moves in many of the markets. So this price range compression that a lot of this quote-unquote QE, which is not QE anymore, has um, perhaps had an impact on markets and trends, um, that seems to be 
uh, disappearing at least for a while. But enough about the markets. Now we need to go to something that is much more important. And, and that is you, Corey, of course. Um, it is, as I said, great to have you uh, here today and, and to share sort of your uh, view on, on some of the things that we uh, debate. But before we kind of get into the detailed conversation, I thought instead of talking about sort of your official CV uh, to frame the conversation, uh, maybe I thought about we could um, you could think of something that is not necessarily on your uh, official CV, but something that has had a a big impact uh, on you and perhaps influenced some of the choices that has led to where you are today, the way you think about investing uh, today. And of course, if you want to use a few things from your CV, uh, feel free to do so. But I'd love to frame the conversation to give our audience a little bit of a background on on, on where you're coming from. So I can really probably give two, one really quick anecdote and then a little bit of a longer anecdote that I think uh, a little bit of both maybe nature and nurture that's led me to where I am today. So on the nature side, I think what always helps inform the conversation is the nickname my parents actually gave me when I was younger. And I think a lot of parents give their kids nicknames. That's a little bit of an identity to their personality. And as embarrassing as it is to admit, the nickname my parents gave me was Safety Boy. Uh, I guess as as a young kid, I was never the one who would run around the pool. Uh, I always had my, you know, little swimmies on to make sure I was safe. I never wandered off. I was just always through and through on the safe side. And that's, I think, always been part of my DNA. Uh, everything I tend to focus on tends to be more about the management of risk and trying to identify uh, previously unidentified sources of risk, uh, identify uncompensated sources of risk. And that really permeates my thinking on the investment side. So that's sort of one side of the equation on, on the nature side. I think just very naturally, I come to investing with a very risk-based mentality. On the other side, a bit of, of the nurture, um, very early on in my career, I was actually spending some time with my father's financial advisor. And as sort of a summer summer gig during, uh, during college. And one of my jobs was to sit in on interviews of portfolio managers who would come through. And I remember on one very particular day in summer 2007, there was a small cap value manager, mutual fund manager who was in the office. And prior to the meeting starting, I just was looking to kill time. And I asked him what he thought of the market. And he gave me an incredibly bearish prognostication of what was going to happen. And I remember that so distinctly because it was summer 2007, which in hindsight, he was absolutely correct, but he was one of the earliest people I had heard really provide a bearish outlook and a bearish thesis, and it really caught me off guard. And so I asked him what he was gonna do about it with that view in mind that was so contrary to what I had been hearing. Uh, and he ultimately said, look, my job as a portfolio manager is to provide the best small cap value experience I can. Um, by, by prospectus, I have to be 95% invested. And ultimately, at the end of the day, I don't even know the individuals who are investing in my fund or, or what their suitability is. So with that in mind, I'm really not going to change anything. I, I really think it's up to the financial advisor who knows the individual to ultimately determine whether this risk is appropriate for them uh, and to take them out of my portfolio if it's not. I said, okay, that, that sort of makes sense. 
And so after the meeting, I stepped aside and I asked my financial, uh, my father's financial advisor sort of relayed the conversation and asked him the same question. And he said, well, I, I think that's crazy. The whole reason I'm hiring an expert in the small cap value space is to manage risk. If I don't, like, I'm not an expert in small cap value, how should I know when it's appropriate to have risk or not take risk in that space? And I thought that was an equally good argument. And so what I ultimately saw was two people pointing the finger at each other as to who was ultimately going to manage risk in the traditional sense. And to me, that just meant preserving capital within the portfolio. Uh, and that really, for me, set off a chain of events that ultimately led to a sort of portfolio management style um, that had the flexibility to go to cash and really focused on preserving capital first and foremost. I mean, it's interesting you say that. I mean, you 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 mentioned sort of your entrance uh, around two thousand and seven, which, and then of course this conversation. But but something I've come across, which I actually think uh, could also be true, and that is just that we as professionals, we very often, I think, get uh, influenced significantly um, by the time we enter the uh, the industry. Um, and it reminds me of a conversation. I know you're, uh, you know, uh, obviously you've been living in Boston for, for a long time. Um, I was in Boston uh, last year um, in spring and um, had a meeting with a, quite a big um, family office asset management firm. And the guy I met with, um, you know, was very honest and said, listen, I know I'm biased against trend following because I entered this industry in around 2009. And since 2009, I haven't really seen any, you know, massive uh, positive performance being generated by at least the industry. So he knew of his bias, but he attributed all to the fact that he entered the industry in 2009. I, I think that's 100% on point. In fact, it was um, the original idea behind my own podcast. So um, I come into the field with a very quantitative background. I implement 100% systematically. Uh, and yet I knew that behind the curtain, um, when I talk to my other friends in the industry and peers who take a similar approach to investing, that quantitative systematic view, as much as we claim it is evidence-based, is very much colored by our experience. And there are underlying human assumptions that go into it. And so the whole idea behind my podcast originally was to say, everyone who, who's coming on is a systematic investor, but I want to talk about their background and do a whole sort of part of the show that talks about where they came from and try to dig out how that actually ended up influencing how they think about investing. And, and I think it's very common that when someone enters the industry has a very large impact as to how they think about investing. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Moritz, what are you? Yeah. Hi. I know it depends on the vintage year, so to say, right? We're all like... What year did you enter, Moritz? I'm just curious now. Say again? <laughs> now I'm curious. What year did you enter this uh, this business? Well, uh, around the tech bubble. So um, just shy okay. of the uh, the year 2000, I think 1997, 98 is when I first got, got interested in, in trading and put the first right. positions on. So um, I was able to live through that period of time. Obviously, with without any experience, so uh, you can uh, you can you already know what the results were, right? Without me telling you what it, what they were. Um, yeah. 
But yeah, I mean, so speaking about that, Corey, I mean, how did you get interested in financial markets? I mean, with the studies that you've done, I mean, you've mentioned your quantitative background, but why go into finance and not into some other area? So I very much originally did not intend to go into finance. I actually, from a very young age, and I don't, I don't recall why, but I actually taught myself how to program very, very early on, some, sometime around when I was 12 or 13. And um, obviously, being a bit younger, grew up in, in the video game generation, very much had my youth colored by the, the Super Nintendo and things like that. And so as a young man, thought I would end up programming video games for a living. And so actually in high school, uh, I spent quite a bit of time in my spare time uh, actually programming video games for the Game Boy Advance and, and things like that. Um, uh, so very, very nerdy background and ultimately ended up attending college to pursue a computer science degree. And as soon as I got to college and sat in some of my first classes, despite absolutely adoring programming and computer science, I realized I was not a particular fan of the people I was in class with. And I, and I realized it wasn't going to be a career I could pursue that it would ultimately make me happy. The idea of sitting behind a computer 24 seven, um, and interfacing with some of the people that I was in class with. And so I, I got a little lost for a while. Didn't quite know what I was going to do. Um, I continued my computer science studies because that was uh, sort of what I had decided to go to school for. Um, but somehow, and I, and I honestly can't recall, but somehow just got introduced to finance. And I realized in, in, you know, meeting with my father's financial advisor, who was kind enough to introduce me to a number of people in the industry, that there was this really interesting intersection that could be made of taking a lot of the computer science background I was developing and had originally, um, and being able to implement a lot of these investment ideas systematically. And so that was sort of the foundation. Uh, ultimately ended up going to graduate school right out of undergrad. I went to Carnegie Mellon's master's in computational finance program because I was very intrigued at that point about um, more complex derivatives. So this was uh, end of spring 2009. I ended up graduating from college, went into Carnegie Mellon immediately, thought I would ultimately find myself uh, at a bank, you know, whether it's Goldman or JP Morgan or or Deutsche Bank at the time was a large hirer out of the program, um, go to a sales and trading desk to trade complex derivatives. Uh, but obviously, mistiming, and, and timing is a little bit of everything in life, uh, mistiming how much of those jobs would disappear from Wall Street. Um, but all of that ultimately culminated uh, in my background of, of really a strong passion and focus on the purely quantitative systematic implementation uh, that I pursue today. Interesting. So instead of going to work for one of the big banks or, or brokerage houses, you um, immediately started off with your own business, right? Together with a, together with your partners. Yeah, I completely tripped and fell into that, to be quite honest. I would love to say we're about to hit 11, our 11th birthday, got started in August 2008. And I would love to say that we had some tremendous foresight. Uh, but really what had happened is after that initial conversation I mentioned um, where I had interviewed the small cap value manager, I started going down a deep rabbit hole of research, um, trying to think about ways in which I could run models in my own portfolio to manage risk. And I think sometimes when you are new to an industry, you can be untainted by 
sort of the common thought of the industry. You're allowed to approach things in a fresh way. And so for me, still being new to the industry, I didn't realize that the idea of having a portfolio that could go to cash was so against the grain. Um, for me, when I got started, ETFs were a very obvious vehicle to be implementing with. It, I didn't know that the rest of the industry hadn't really adopted them. And so I started developing these models, uh, ETF-based, mostly trend-following driven, though at the time, trend-following was still, at least in the circles I ran in, somewhat of a dirty word. People didn't like the word momentum either. So I I used other words to try to describe what I was doing, but ultimately it was sort of a sector rotation based trend following program that could go to cash. It caught the eye of an asset manager I knew who asked to license the output of the models from me. So basically the, the trend signals I was generating and then he would manage portfolios based on those trend signals. At the time I was a broke college student. Uh, so to me, I was like, absolutely, I could use some beer money put the company together as just a pure intellectual property holding company would, would generate the signals and license them to him each week. Uh, and that's really how it got its start. By the time I graduated grad school, uh, that asset manager had, had gathered some significant assets tracking the strategy. And I said, you want to know what, this is a real opportunity for me to pursue a more entrepreneurial drive. I can always come back to sort of the classic Wall Street approach, but this is now a business that's generating positive cash flow. It seems like post 2008, these ideas are more attractive to the industry. ETF managed portfolios are growing in popularity. Let's see if we can turn this into a business. Hmm, pretty interesting. Although I do think that trend following might still be a little bit of a dirty word, despite you know the years past. Well, everyone started to love it, and then I think lately it's gotten a little dirtier. Uh, that's true. That's true. Well, we'll keep fighting for it anyways. Um, now, one of the things that we spend a lot of time discussing on the podcast, and where Jerry and I actually uh, often get into a little bit of a debate, um, is the question about diversification. And I know you've done some work on this, uh, and was wondering if you could kind of break down kind of the three components of uh, diversification in, in, in the way you see it, kind of the, the what, the how, and, and, and the when. And maybe we can spend some time um, getting a little bit deeper on, on that, if you will. Absolutely. And, and I actually listened to the podcast you published earlier this week. You and Jerry, I believe, were actually arguing about this very topic. And I, and I want you to know you're, we were, you're both yeah. wrong. Just we'll just start there. No, no, no. I, it's a, it's a it's a really interesting topic to me. Um, I put this in one of the categories of very unsexy topics that has a huge impact on portfolios. Everyone loves to talk about their secret proprietary complex blend of signals and how they're generating alpha, but I think so much more of a portfolio's objective is achieved in the really boring stuff. So. Um, just to take a quick little tangent and then I'll get back to your question. I tend to look at a sure. portfolio as being very akin to, to baking a cake or cooking a meal. There's the ingredients, uh, which for quants and systematic investors are the signals that you generate from your um, trading strategies, or the buy and sell signals. But then there's the recipe that takes those signals and actually turns them into a portfolio. So I would bet that if you gave... You know, we all assume, say, a, a multi-asset futures portfolio, and we were all given the exact same signals. So Niels Moritz, and let's say Jerry was here, and, and I'm on the show, and we're all given the same set of buy and sell signals. 
we would not necessarily construct the same portfolio. And yet so much emphasis in the industry is on what are your secret signals, when in reality, how you choose to implement those signals, when you rebalance, how you manage diversification within the portfolio are huge contributors to a portfolio's success, in my opinion. And it goes totally uh, unfocused. So to your question about diversification, I look at diversification along what I call the three axes of diversification. And the first one is one that people are very, very aware of. And this is the what I call the what axis. What are you investing in? And this is sort of your traditional um, correlation-based diversification across different asset classes. And I think uh, the, the benefits of this kind of diversification are very obvious to people. Um, you are looking to exploit the, the sort of differences in, in relative performance, um, try to get that quote unquote free lunch of, of asset class diversification by maintaining a high level of expected return, but taking advantage of covariance opportunities to reduce volatility. Um, there's also the benefits of reducing idiosyncratic exposure to different asset classes and large negative skew moves. So those are sort of well known. The other two axes almost get no focus, but I think they are incredibly important. So the second axis is your how. Uh, how are you making these investment decisions? And I call this process diversification. So this comes in going back to sort of the podcast and the debate you guys were having about trend following signals. Should you optimize your trend following signals? Should you stick with one set of trend following signals? I would actually argue that both sort of miss the point of why are you only using one set of trend following signals in the first place? Um, if, and we can go really into depth here, but if just as a simple example, I think 12 month time series momentum and a 10 month moving average both work, why wouldn't I use both signals in the portfolio? Because there's going to be times that one signal might work, one might not, and you get the benefits of process diversification. And here you don't see sort of the same decrease in volatility that you see with asset class diversification. Um, but what you really do see is a, is a reduction in negative idiosyncratic events that can occur because of your specification risk that you're taking when you only choose one process. Uh, and you can think of this very broadly too. A lot of people make this debate between should I be 100% trend following, should I be 100% passive strategic? Well, there are different processes that have different underlying assumptions to them. And the reality is they tend to do well in different market environments. Trend following can do very well in environments like 2008, 2013, when there are very clear trends in equity markets, for example. Uh, your strategic portfolio tends to not do very well there. There's a, there's a carrying cost of having things like lower risk assets in the portfolio that reduce your opportunity uh, to participate in years like 2013. On the other hand, uh, whipsaw years that are tough for trend following tend to be very good years for strategic. So my question would be, I'm, unless I'm incredibly overconfident that one will outperform the other over my investment horizon, why wouldn't I diversify my process? And then the last axis, and, and I apologize for meandering so long here, I'll, I'll shut up in a moment. But the last axis that I talk about is the when. When are you making these decisions? 
And this is sort of a diversification of opportunity. And I think this, this one very much goes overlooked. I actually just had a paper published in the Journal of Index Investing in the most recent um, publication about this topic. And it, it, it's a little less clear on sort of the continuous trend following side, but I'll, I'll give a very, very basic example, which is, uh, and this comes back to a lot of the indices that we see created nowadays, they are rebalanced on a very fixed schedule. So let's just use a very simple example of a value portfolio that's rebalanced once a year. Well, if you rebalance that value portfolio every March, you might end up with a very, very different portfolio than someone who takes the exact same process, exact same methodology, but rebalances in September. You're gonna be very subject to the opportunity set that's in front of you at the point of rebalancing. And so a lot of people don't focus on this, but trying to diversify when you rebalance, when you evaluate your signals and how you incorporate that into the portfolio can again uh, have a dramatic reduction in the sort of timing luck that your portfolio can be subject to. So big picture, I look at diversification across three really important axes, what, how, and when. And I think the how and when go dramatically overlooked in this industry. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't want to speak for, for Jerry when he's not here, but I mean, I completely uh, agree with you. I mean, one of the things we found at our uh, firm uh, is definitely the the importance of uh, diversifying the process. Um, and we've been doing that uh, for, uh, you know, more more so than, than, you know, from 1974 when obviously computers weren't that uh, sophisticated and powerful uh, our founder um, obviously was limited in some ways to uh, how how many uh, you know time frames we were using, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but since sort of 2006, we've increased that massively. We've introduced other ways of of doing trend following and 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 introduced uh, further diversification within that. And I, I agree. I mean, I think it's it's helped. I think it's made it more. Uh, robust. Um, I think the debate, Jerry and I, at least one of them um, recently we had, was more about, you know, should you put all your money in trend following because it is so diversified and different asset classes and all of that, or and I was arguing the case, I think uh, that if you're a young person, maybe another route to go was to kind of go the Ray Dalio route and say, if I can find, you know, 10, 15 different return streams that are lowly correlated. Maybe I can just construct a portfolio like that, and I don't have to worry so much about it, uh, and 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 have to look at my statements every month because, you know, the the structure or the holy grail that he found is really the the benefit of that kind of diversification. Um, so uh, so yeah, we've had our good good debates on that, but that's super interesting uh, in terms of what you found uh, as well, uh, Corey, for sure. And you know those those processes they're all <clears throat> at least as I'm as far as I'm concerned they're part of the investment process anyways they're they're built into the system right there's different asset classes there's different types of signals that are being generated automatically and then as to the when well it happens when it happens right it's driven by the price so all of these three axes are included but the point I wanted to make and you know I think that very often goes overlooked by a lot of the people that are interested in research such as yourselves you know, you read um, an academic paper and people, well, the authors will say, we're testing a naive trend following strategy, say, you know, 12 month momentum. And they will only implement that and observe it at the end of the month. So they're guilty of exactly ignoring the last two axes that you've mentioned. They're 
using different asset classes, okay, that's fine, but they're only using one type of signal and they're using it repetitively at one singular point in time. And then I also, you know, sometimes question, well, what are the results really worth that are being presented in that paper? Because they may just be, you know, they're, they're really lacking the sample, a statistical sample for that strategy. It may just be one lucky outcome that they're looking at, and then they're building a whole research paper around it. And, you know, I think that's questionable. I, I would argue it goes beyond just research. So I, I can give one specific example and then uh, a number of anecdotes. But one specific example here, and this is outside the realm of trend following a little, but is, and it might be an example a lot of people are aware of, is research affiliates fundamental indexing. And so it was very interesting as that was an approach um, for people who aren't aware of research affiliates, large quantitative equity manager, their fundamental indexing approach. They might object to the way I describe it, but it's very much a um, value tilt type portfolio. And when they initially brought it to market, it had an annual rebalance. And so just rebalance once a year and the weights remain consistent. And what was very interesting is they, in real time, lived through the 2008 and 2009 environment and found that their um, portfolio outcome was heavily, heavily skewed by their choice of when to rebalance, which I believe was in March. And they did this analysis that found that if they had rebalanced, say, in September instead or any other sort of quarter end, their return dispersion in 2009 relative to the market. I, I believe that the March portfolio underperformed the market by a couple hundred basis points. Whereas if they had rebalanced, say in September, they would have outperformed the market by a thousand basis points. So exact identical process. Um, and almost, it was, I think it was like almost 1300 basis points of return dispersion just based on when you rebalance. And so this is something that very much exists in the industry. You see it in a lot of ETF products, a lot of index-based products that just have an annual or, or semi-annual reconstitution. But I also see it even on maybe more the tactical ETF side. So a lot of folks now that I work with, financial advisors, implement some sort of tactical ETF rotation program. And they very frequently are using momentum and trend signals because they're somewhat easy to measure but they are almost always implementing them at the end of the month. And I have seen asset management firms that do the same thing that have gone out of business because of that choice, because there's such a huge amount of timing luck as to when you elected to sample your signals. And so again, it's not as obvious how it comes into play when you're looking continuously every single day. But I've found in practice, a lot of firms aren't doing that. They are just rebuilding their portfolios maybe once a month, uh, and that can be very dangerous. And there's very easy fixes that I'm happy to go into and, and discuss. Uh, but it it is prevalent in the industry in index creation and a lot of these new smart beta products that are out there. Absolutely. Uh, Moritz, do you have a question as well you wanted to dive into? Otherwise, happy to. No, no, I think that's fine. Um, great. Thanks for answering that. I agree with all of that. Yeah, sure. I mean, one of the things that... Um, you know, we also talk a lot about, and I think also that people ask us, not just on the podcast, but also in our day-to-day -day job, and that is, you know, how do you know when your model or your process uh, isn't working anymore? And and it's kind of uh, this continued 
battle or constant battle between sort of the, the theory and, and the data and, and so on and so forth. Why don't you talk uh, a little bit about, you know, this topic in terms of what you've looked into and, and, and found, um, you know, and, and I guess this is goes across different factors. I mean, obviously we know that not all factors work all the time. Trend following certainly fits into that. But, I, you know, even though I'm not uh, very well versed in, moment, in, 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 in value, I, I, you know, from, from, from tweeting or from tweets and, and, and reading about it, it seems like, um, you know, value has been going through a rough time as well. So how do we, how do investors and, and how do we as, as managers um, sort of balance those two things in terms of, you know, when is, when is it not working? When has something really changed? And this time it really is different. Uh, and when are we just going through uh, one of these, um, you know, periods where things are not uh, working as, as, as they would normally do? I love this topic uh, because I think it is a not very easy topic to address. Um, mm. Very complicated I, I actually wrote a piece about this. I think it was last June. I called it Factor Fimblewinter. And the idea behind the, the name of the piece is for people who have never heard the term Fimblewinter, it, it is the, um, in Norse mythology, the never ending winter that occurs before Ragnarok, which is the end of the world. And the reason I chose that name was because I think when a lot of people think about a factor or systematic strategy, no longer working, they assume all of a sudden it's going to perform negatively. And the reality is, if a strategy is getting arbitraged out of the market, it doesn't mean the strategy is necessarily going to perform negatively. And I should, I should be explicit here, gross of costs. Costs will obviously be a drag. Mm -hmm. But gross of costs, it, it doesn't mean the strategy will suddenly perform negatively. Because if that were to occur, well, then all of a sudden you could just invert your signal and now you have a positive performing strategy again. What you get instead is when a strat when something gets arbitraged out of the market, whether through crowding or the signal just no longer works, is you get random behavior. And so as quants, this can be very frustrating because random can be random positive, in which case we think a signal's still working, when in reality it's not, we just got lucky. It can be random negative. And often we're looking at that random negative as a sign saying, is, has this stopped working? So trend following, I think, has been very frustrating for a lot of folks in the last decade. Um, value versus growth. Value has underperformed growth pretty consistently over the last decade and has a lot of people questioning, does this factor still work? I think where we've really painted ourselves into a corner as a community, as quants, is that we have beat our chest endlessly over the last decade or two about the preponderance of data supporting these signals. And we say, look, something like value, systematic value investing, price to book, uh, it has worked in the U.S. for hundreds of years. Uh, it has worked abroad for hundreds of years. You can use it to time countries. You can use it to time sectors. And so that sort of breadth and depth gives us an incredible amount of statistical confidence. And we beat our chests about this and say, why would you invest any other way? We have all the evidence in our corner. The problem becomes when we no longer believe that signal works. So there's a lot of people today, and I'll, and I'll use that price to book concept saying, look, price to book doesn't make sense anymore in the current era of how companies are, are reporting assets on their balance sheet. There's all sorts of non-tangibles. It doesn't make sense for certain industries. 
really not the right value metric. Um, the original construction by Fama French was done in a non-sector neutral manner. That has huge impacts. It's really sort of a, um, you know, technology versus financials or, or a huge inflation sensitive play. And there's all these arguments as to why it doesn't work. The problem is even as performance has meandered for the last decade, it's not nearly substantial enough to undo the statistical significance of that factor. And so this paper I wrote simply asked the question, let's assume today all the factors stop working. So I used um, value, momentum, quality, low beta. And I said, let's assume they stop working and have completely random performance going forward. If we update our statistical significance in a, in a Bayesian manner, um, trying to constantly re-ask the question, is this significant? How long would it take uh, for us to ultimately be dissuaded by the evidence? And I used all these Monte Carlo techniques to simulate it out. I did it multiple different ways to try to avoid different assumptions. And ultimately what I found was that my career will likely be long over before anyone's come to a statistical conclusion as to whether these things work or not. I think small cap is a perfect example. Small cap has pretty much gone nowhere, point to point. It's been a drawdown as a, as a factor for the last 30 years. And it's only in the last three or four years that people are finally saying, you want to, this might not be statistically significant anymore. So think about that. You've got something that's been statistically significant. It took 30 years to undo. And yet that mm. small cap premium has really permeated the industry in all the years since. So I think it's a re it puts us in a really tough place as a community because when we bang our chests about all the statistical significance, it prevents us from making changes. Because if I say today, I don't want to use price to book anymore because I don't think it works, a savvy investor is going to ask me, well, how do you differentiate between all the stuff you're saying has evidence and now you're saying, I don't want to use this despite the fact that it's still statistically significant. So I think as a community, we're at a point where we, we I think we need to be a little careful as to how we're communicating this because we're going to put ourselves in a box and not be able to evolve our strategies out of um, the way of potential changes in the industry that may not be showing up uh, based on statistical measures, but may, you know, truly make sense from a more common sense point of view. Just as a quick follow-up uh, before you, Moritz, jump in, but just, just I'm just curious, given the fact that trend following is certainly, at le uh, you know, um, in the opinion of, of many, including uh, myself, is based on human behavior deep down, does that give us any hope that trend following will continue to work, uh, so to speak? I mean, that does it put it in a slightly different um, category compared to other uh, factors? So it's a great question. I think there's sort of two, two ways you can make a cut at this. The first is where do you think an edge comes from? And, I, and I'll sort of lean on the Mobison framework here. Uh, sort of, and I would say there's maybe four sources of edge. Um, one would be informational that you just have better, unique information. Uh, obvious example there is insider information, which is illegal. But if you've got better information than people that the market doesn't have, you can hopefully exploit that. The second is analytical, which is everyone has the same information, but you're able to use it and see things in the data in a different way. Um, 
And so that might be right now today sort of alternative data. So that might alternative data might be an arms race for an informational edge as well as an analytical edge. Uh, that the data is out there, but people are able to find unique insights into it. I don't think trend following fits in those. It's it's an open secret. The signals are not hard to calculate. I think trend following falls into maybe the third category, which is this behavioral edge, which is the idea that there are certain strategies that are just hard. Uh, they're hard to stick with, hard to implement. Um, and that sort of, by definition, being difficult makes it so that a lot of weak hands end up throwing in the towel and ultimately passing the the alpha opportunity to the strength strong hands that can continue to hold. Now, the question is, why should there necessarily be alpha with, with trend following? And there I would say, well, there's really two arguments that it, when it comes to factors, you either have a risk-based premium, in which case it's not really alpha, you're just getting compensated for risk. And so a lot of people would put value in this category that you are buying companies that have a high chance of going out of business and therefore for the market to market participants to avoid that risk, they want to sell it. And so in a, in a sense, you're providing insurance to them by taking it off their hands and demanding a premium for it. So that might be the more risk-based premium. I think it's very hard to argue why trend following and momentum are necessarily risk-based. And so the argument that supporting those tends to be more behavioral. Um, investor underreaction, anchoring biases, disposition bias, herding behavior ultimately creates those three together, the emergence of a trend that can be exploited if you're going to track them and implement it systematically. And I think what's interesting is the idea that um, because that is just very inherent in human behavior, you would expect that to persist. I think trend following is is really, really interesting. Um, and I'd love to dive into this because it is one of the only uh, anomalies out there that you can sort of disentangle and say, well, there's some behavior to trend following that's really attractive from a purely mechanical process. It's mechanically convex, which gives it really interesting diversification properties to a portfolio, regardless of whether it adds any alpha. And then there's the whole premium side of it, which requires the autocorrelation of returns, which is a little bit more questionable. But I think it makes, on a standalone basis, whether trend following inherently um, it creates a premium going forward, I still think even if that premium is dramatically reduced or outright questionable, there's mechanical aspects of trend following that I still think make it potentially worth the incorporation within a portfolio. Yeah, I mean, I loved your your answer there, and it reminds me of a podcast I heard this week, actually, with Patrick O'Shaughnessy and and Ted Seides, where I think Patrick was saying something like, you know, yeah, I mean, we don't mind sharing a lot of our ideas and information as long as it's behavioral, because it's already out there, so to speak, and 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 it's about. Uh, you know, the difficulty of holding on to the strategy. That's kind of the real secret. But if it's something where, as you say, maybe we have a little bit of better information here or, you know, some kind of other edge, then they were much more uh, careful about sharing. And I think it ties perfectly into to your answer. So I appreciate that. Moritz, sorry, I've been going on for a while. Yeah, I like what I hear. Um, I agree with that, you know, observation on on the edge coming from the behavioral side of things. Sometimes I question or ask myself now that, you know, everybody has apparently read um, Tversky and Kahneman and we're getting all more familiar with our own biases, 
especially as they relate to our investment performance, uh, will that also potentially have an impact on that edge going forward, right? More money is managed by quant funds, the, you know, the properties and the, the advantages of being systematic. Many people understand those. I know it could be more than, you know, there are right now, but it's kind of like, you know, that news is, is in some way also yesterday's news. The information is out there. And the question is, what will it do to the performance of the factor going forward? And with all of that, like, you know, looking at a historical time series and testing a system, what you've said there is correct. I mean, you can do, um, a hundred year back test on trend following create a massively large sample size and it would take you years and years and years um, to dissuade you from stopping to trade that right that factor but we all live in the right here right now clients are notoriously impatient you know they will not have the patience to go through or most of them don't have the patience to go through a three to five year drawdown with you and they will question the approach and so I'm not sure if there is a real scientific answer to that in, in the sense that, you know, is something crowded? Do I need to stop trading it now? In my view, it has to do more with experience and being a part of the market, you know, observing how your system trades, uh, having a look at liquidity, how many people are trading in potentially the same way to the extent that you can know it, right? Kind of like staying on top of things living through the way that markets evolve because they always evolve and you know getting a feel for when the thing may may have a problem and then adapt and you know make changes but you know i'm, I'm not sure if there is a clear cut like one zero type of thing where you say now it's the time to shut the thing off because it's definitely from statistical point of view stopping to work see what i mean i think um there's a really interesting line of thought here that you, you bring up more it's the one of the questions should be with this transition of more quant funds coming out more systematic implementation more ideas chasing the same performance and then on the other hand a lot more people adopting a passive mentality how is that is it people ultimately walking away from the poker table and we're losing the misbehavior that we're trying to exploit i think what's really interesting is you you I think we need to separate the universe. I think there are those investment strategies that happen intra-asset class. So, for example, um, value stocks, picking value stocks. I think there's a lot of assets that chase that concept. And regardless of how someone forms their portfolio, they probably have a slice of their portfolio that's dedicated to buying value stocks because it's just a very well-accepted common narrative and everyone wants to buy you know, high quality companies at a cheap price. And so you have a lot of money, regardless of portfolio formation, chart sort of pursuing the same signal. I think trend following, especially multi-asset trend following, falls a little bit outside that category because what you see, and, and at least it's been my experience, and I think this is very common in the industry, is people tend to very much lock down their top-down exposure. And so there isn't a lot of cross-asset exploitation that happens. The, the risk budget that exists uh, in a lot of personal portfolios, advisor models, as well as institutional models, don't allow for very rapid changes in cross-asset exposures. Um, and I think that structural limitation that exists within the industry will help uh, 
strategies like trend following and global macro and sort of these cross asset rotation strategies continue to be successful and less likely to be arbitraged away from a pure um, saturation perspective that that this it almost uh, structurally limits how many people can try to pursue these edges because there is so much limitation as to how that active risk budget is being pursued in a cross asset manner. Very interesting. Now, um, do you have anything, Niels? Otherwise, I'd like to uh, to ask some questions about risk because uh, you know risk is all over your presentations, Corey, and you've mentioned it in the uh, in the introduction that that is your core focus, right? Yes, it is. So one of the things I've I've read in the papers and the materials that you've sent us is sequence risk. And, you know, I kind of like got my head around it, but maybe to the benefit of our listeners, could you explain what you mean with sequence risk and why that is a risk, especially if investors or as investors approach their retirement? Sequence risk is this basic idea that the order of returns matters. And if you take a finance 101 course, the first thing you're taught is that the order of returns doesn't matter. Um, Whether you have a 25% gain and then a 25% loss should leave you in the same place as if you have a 25% loss and then a 25% gain. Um, And the idea of sequence risk is that that math is only true if you ignore uh, any sort of portfolio contributions or withdrawals. And so there's not a lot we can do on the contribution side. People are perpetually saving. But when someone has exhausted their human capital and are now trying to live off of their investment capital, so someone entering retirement, what you find is that the order of returns very early on in their retirement can have a dramatically outsized impact on the type of retirement lifestyle they're able to maintain. So if you retire in 2007 and your first year of retirement is 2008 and you have a 60-40 portfolio, you may be sticking to a plan where you're only taking a 4% withdrawal. But because your portfolio has seen such a large drawdown, that absolute value, when you when you calculated what that 4% was going to be, you know, if you have a million-dollar portfolio and you were going to take 40000 well, at the end of 2008, your portfolio is no longer a million dollars, it's much less than a million dollars. So that 40,000 represents a much larger proportion. And so what you find is that very early in retirement, if someone enters a sequence of either a low return environment where their withdrawals represent um, a very real drag on the opportunity for portfolio growth, or they hit very large drawdowns early in retirement, it can have a dramatically outsized impact into the longevity of their portfolio. And so there's all sorts of ways you can try to avoid this. Um, And this is inherently the idea behind a portfolio glide path. This is why people de-risk their portfolios. There's actually some really interesting analysis you can do where if you look at um, sort of a historical efficient frontier between stocks and bonds and say, I want a portfolio at retirement that gives me about a 10% volatility, let's say, you end up, if you use sort of the full history of US stocks and bonds with a portfolio that's got a heavy allocation to fixed income, call it 40, 50% into fixed income, which is sort of very common, you know, that 50, 50, 60, 40 that people hit near retirement. But if you were to simply remove from the data the worst two years of stock returns or the worst three years of stock returns and recreate that efficient frontier, 
you would dramatically reduce the amount of fixed income exposure you would be carrying around. Which tells us that for people trying to hit the, this risk profile, there's a huge amount of safety assets they carry in their portfolio only to help insure against these, you know, once or twice in a lifetime, really negative, bad environments that are tough to predict. So a lot of the work I do in trying to manage risk is saying, well, are there more proactive ways we can try to manage risk to help people react in these sort of market environments, but not necessarily carry around a tremendous amount of fixed income? Or are there ways in which we can try to diversify our diversifier so it's not just fixed income, but incorporating strategies like trend following, which have historically done really well in these sort of crisis environments that can have such a big impact on investor uh, lifestyles when they occur early in retirement. So that's the core idea behind sequence risk. And again, to me, the, the solution to managing sequence risk is very naturally this idea of glide pathing a portfolio. But I think we can go a step beyond that. And again, reincorporating these ideas of diversification, diversify our diversifiers. If we're going to have a strategic portfolio, how can we complement it with ideas like trend following that might be able to help protect us in different sorts of market drawdown environments. Got it. Really cool. Nice. Um, another one on risk, which uh, which I also found in your papers, is um, you say risk cannot be destroyed. It can only be transformed. What do you mean by that? Uh, I have to stop writing papers because <laughs> I only get in trouble when people <laughs> find this stuff. So that's actually it's one of my favorite lines to say. And this actually goes back to my graduate school days where um, the program I went to, this this computational finance program, was all about pricing complex derivatives. And one of the patterns that I noticed in the coursework was that everything we were doing was ultimately about the identification of risk, the isolation of that risk, extraction, packaging, and pricing. And all we were really doing was taking risk in some form and passing it to someone else who was willing to bear it and either paying a fee or if we were going to bear the risk, demanding a fee to bear that risk. And so that mentality really permeated my view at first of really assets in general. And so when we ask ourselves, for example, why do we expect to earn a return for holding equities? Well, a lot of people point to the fundamental growth of the business, but at the end of the day, someone had to sell us their security uh, and, and the question is, why should it earn a premium beyond treasuries if we all believe the prices are going to go up? Well, it's because there is some uncertainty to that. Uncertainty both over the long run and uncertainty within our defined holding period. And for that risk, we're going to require a reward. So another, another phrase that I commonly say is no pain, no premium. Without this pain, we shouldn't have the expectation to earn a reward. As time went on and I started doing more and more work on the portfolio side, I realized this idea of risk transference really uh, almost hit every aspect of the portfolio and that it's all about the trade-offs you're making. Um, that when, when you have a, a risk, um, you are either going to bear it and hopefully it's a compensated risk and the idea is you should only be holding compensated risks. But there's other times when you might say, you want this isn't a risk I want. I'm going to take it out of the portfolio. But ultimately, I'm the, the risk I'm taking on is an opportunity cost risk, that by selling this risk to someone else, I no longer want to hold it. Um, I am taking on a different type of risk, which I might have been 
wrong. This permeates through to things like the process um, you use. So you might choose, for example, to implement with some specific model or some specific trend following uh, formation period or holding period. All of those are choices that inherently have some sort of specification risk that go along with them. And as you change those, you're just sort of moving around where that risk is. And so I often think of risk as this idea of almost like this, this blob. So you can almost imagine Plato in front of you and all the future states of the world, and you can take that Plato and, and move it around to the future states of the world. And so if you hold all equities, for example, in your portfolio, you might have a big blob that exists in these super negative economic states. And what you might do is say, you want, I don't want to be subject to risk just in those really bad states because my career perhaps is positively correlated to them. So I'm going to incorporate some fixed income. And so what you've done now is you've taken almost taken your hand and smushed down on that Play-Doh and smeared it across other states of the world. So the mass of risk that you have in that super negative state is lower, but now by holding on to more fixed income uh, in your portfolio more constantly, you are reducing your opportunities for positive returns in other states of the world, which is just a different type of risk. It's an opportunity cost risk. And so that's really where this idea comes from, that, that risk permeates everything. It's never really destroyed. Everything we do is a game of trade-offs. And, and I think it's really important to always keep that in mind as to when we're making changes to a portfolio or constructing a portfolio, always trying to think about what trade-offs are we inherently making in this construction or this decision. If I could just butt into this uh, topic, I think it's very interesting. And I want to maybe ask you, um, just an, on, a, on a very related note, uh, a, a kind of a real live conversation I'm having right now uh, with a very large uh, investor and where they're basically, um, you know, although the, the, the uh, let's call it the, the, the research side or the analyst side is convinced that, you know, uh, they should have an allocation to trend following. But the PMs who have to make the decision essentially is it has to weigh up, you know, why should we have trend following versus just buying more duration, i.e. fixed income? I mean, if you were going to talk to them directly, and um, I'm thinking you're going to argue that trend following would be a better choice, um, but given where we are right now in the environment with rates where they are and, and so on and so forth, uh, knowing that they what they're worried about is um, some kind of um, you know, positive return, especially when equities go down. I mean, what what would you tell them if you had the opportunity? I think for me, it's always a question of, and these, these are always hard conversations because I don't think there's a black or, or white answer because it's always very subjective as to what the investor's goals are, what their utility function really is. But I think what you can say is, all right, let's let's think about the different states of the world. In the last couple of crises that have been economic shocks, you have seen negative realized correlations between stocks and bonds. You've seen the flight to safety. You've seen the dollar pop. You've seen treasuries pop. That was not always the case. It's very easy to go back another two decades in the U.S. and find periods where stocks and bonds did not have a negative correlation. They had a very strong positive correlation because market fears were inflationary. 
Uh, we were concerned about inflation shocks, not as much economic shocks. Now those ultimately boiled into economic shocks. But when you have a market that the foremost risk on its mind is inflation, you end up with positive correlation between stocks and bonds. So the question becomes, what I would ask ultimately is, again, in this idea of transference of risk, are you willing to get rid of trend following and bear the risk of the market environment, which is positive correlation between stocks and bonds? Are you willing to take all this sort of Play-Doh in front of you that is nicely smeared out? So yes, you're underperforming in maybe today's environment because trend following isn't doing as well, but in future possible environments, trend following is more likely to help, you know, in that case where stocks and bonds are positively correlated. Are you willing to lump up all of that Play-Doh and put it in that environment? And if you are, great, just recognize you're taking that risk, that you are making a bet that stocks and bonds are going to remain negatively correlated for the foreseeable future as it relates to the lifetime of your capital. If you don't want to take that bet, then then maybe you should think about how you should diversify your diversifiers. And by the way, trend following has a phenomenal history of doing well in a variety of different drawdown environments, not just economic shocks, but also inflationary shocks. And so that's the conversation I try to have. And look, again, some people will just say, um, yeah, I'm willing to make that bet. I think there's also, we need to recognize the, the agency problem here that it is not just about the utility of the asset owner, but the PMs who have very real career risk tied to this, that you can make the right decision ex ante and still be wrong ex post. And you are always in this industry measured on your ex post results. So if you're a PM saying, look, I'm diversifying my diversifiers to make sure that we are not subject to catastrophic loss in any market environment, but that costs us in almost all market environments, they can be fired during a benign market period where they are just overly implicitly hedged. Uh, and I think that's that's worth always acknowledging because there's a very real component in this industry that is making sure portfolios are sustainable for people who are trying to manage their career risk as well. But I do think from your from your perspective, having that conversation, it is around identifying those environments where the way they are electing to manage risk will not work. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, is it okay if I continue more? It's a little bit longer with a few more sure, topics. Sure, go for it. It's interesting. Okay, cool. I, I wanted to just uh, acknowledge uh, a couple of our Twitter friends. Uh, I know, uh, Corey, that um, people I'm sure you uh, know as well, but Mike and Darren were tweeting this morning about, you know, why Alpha doesn't live in the comfort zone and so on and so forth. But since you've already talked a little bit about the no pain, uh, no premium type um, thing, um, unless you want to add anything uh, to that, uh, which they were asking about or saying at least they'd love to hear your opinion. Um, I wanted to shift gear a little bit. Um, and uh, I want to talk to you about something that, uh, again, uh, I know it's something you have been diving into, um, but it's also something that we come across quite often. Uh, and that's the, the conversation between kind of simplicity versus complexity and also, you know, when is something robust uh, and, and when is it kind of fragile? 
Um, we often say to people who come, certainly people who ask us questions about, you know, optimal settings, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and we often kind of give the feedback and say, you also sometimes have to accept that, you know, good enough is good enough. Uh, and uh, because if you start making things too uh, complicated, it actually uh, doesn't bode well in terms of uh, stability, robustness, and, 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 and so on and so forth. So I'd love for you to... Um, to dive into all of your sort of uh, thoughts and and findings uh, in this uh, area as well, if you if you don't mind. Absolutely, uh, and I do think we touched a bit on on the idea that alpha can't live where it's easy. Sure. Um, so I, I'll I'll only say one sentence about that, which is ultimately the market both simultaneously loves and loathes an arbitrage opportunity. So when things are easy, the market is going to jump on it. So it ultimately means. Alpha has to be difficult to pursue, difficult to either get the information, analyze the information. It's got to be uh, something that's structurally difficult for people to access or it just has to be hard to stick with. Um, and so unless it's hard, it probably isn't alpha because a lot of people would just arbitrage it away. To your point on simplicity versus complexity, this is a, this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart for sure. I think there is there's sort of two things that happen. Uh, first, I will say there's there's this idea, and I mentioned this uh, a couple of years back actually on a podcast with, with a good friend, Meb Faber, and I used the line that hubris sells, but humility survives. And what I meant by that was in this industry, it is very often people are attracted to the complex. They want this very sexy, esoteric process. They want to be dazzled by quants wielding formulas. And the reality is, I think we all know, the more complex something is, the more prone it can be to, uh, to potential overfitting. So you have that risk. On the other hand, there's this camp that believes that simple is more robust. And I, I do believe that is true, but only up to a point. And I think I'm stealing this from Mobison again, who sort of said, look, the, the benefit of simplicity versus complexity is almost an inverted yield, inverted U-curve. That on the far left, when you're too simple, it's actually a drag. And then you get on the far right, when you're too complex, it's a drag. You need to find a happy medium. And so the very, very simple example I give, um, I, again, I wrote a commentary on this. I write a weekly research commentary. They're hit and miss. I like all of them. Uh, we'll let the audience decide if they like them. But another one I wrote was this um, commentary called When Simplicity Met Fragility. And to me, what's really interesting is you find that the very complex uh, strategies are overfit and therefore fragile. But sometimes the very simple strategies are fragile because they're not diversified enough. So a very simple example, um, which will sound very naive to you guys, but th these strategies exist in the wild, would be I'm just going to look at the S&P 500 and I'm just going to look at its 200-day moving average and I'm going to buy the S&P when it's above and sell the S&P when it's below. And people will look at that and run 100 years of back tests and say, look, this worked over the long run. How wonderful is it? Uh, and they just sort of look at the long-term annualized returns. The problem with that approach is you can find all these time periods where the market was 10 basis points away from changing its signal. 
that, you know, it was one afternoon or, or one day away that if it had just had a slightly different return, the profile of that strategy would have been very different. And so in this um, study, in this weekly commentary, what I did is I took three ideas like that. So I think I did a price minus moving average, moving average crossover, another type of trend following model. And I said, all I'm going to do is I'm going to take the long-term return of the S&P, but I'm going to add a little bit of randomness to the returns every single day. And in just a, dosing just a little bit of randomness, I'm going to find out how sensitive these, these signals really were over the long run. And what I found in that study was that when you are just using a single signal on a single market, you are very, very, very subject to this idea of specification luck. Um, you chose one signal, one market, um, and ultimately whether you happen to just miss or make that 10 basis point day uh, can have a huge compounding effect on your returns. And so in the study, what I showed was, all right, the very simple answer to this is don't just choose one. Why wouldn't we use all three models? And instead of having a binary in or out, now you've got something that's a little bit more like a dimmer switch. And when you added randomness to that portfolio, where the signals were being generated, and you had more of a dimmer switch, the terminal wealth you achieved was far more consistent. And so what's interesting here is when we're measuring the risk, it's not really a risk in portfolio volatility as it's typically quantitatively measured. For me, it was the risk in what's your dispersion and terminal wealth that's achieved. And what you find is for highly, highly, highly simple models, um, that, that dispersion and terminal wealth is, is really wide. Now, just as sort of to put a bow on this, what I, what I want to stress is this isn't, I'm not admonishing the idea that you should you, you shouldn't just use one signal. So I, I don't want to put words into Jerry's mouth, but when I was listening to him talk, he was talking about the idea of just using, hey, he's got this big um, portfolio. He's well diversified across holdings. He's using the same sort of signal on every single holding to avoid over-specifying his signal. And going back to this idea of the three dimensions of diversification, your what, how, and when, to me, your goal should be to maximize sort of the, the volume of space that you're covering in those three dimensions uh, to ultimately maximize how much diversification you have. But what you find is that if you have a lot of diversification in one axis, so let's say you're, you're using a multi-asset futures portfolio and you're do, applying a single trend-following signal, you have so much diversification, so many independent bets going on across all these different futures contracts that introducing another trend type of trend following signal doesn't have as big an impact as say if you were only using trend following on just US equities. So there's always a little bit of a, a trade-off here, but at the end of the day, it's really when you get to the point of having very little diversification and an overly simplistic model, um, you can create a very, very fragile outcome. Fantastic. Kind of like goes back to the point <clears throat> that I made earlier about those academic papers, right? Because I think some of them are guilty of exactly that, where they have not enough diversification in their processes and their signals. And, and therefore, the result that they show... Um, you know, could be very sensitive to just a little bit of addition of noise, right? And if that noise existed or had existed in the past, the results would have been massively different. And it's so easy to overlook that fact. But 
proper like research and, and testing of strategies, you know, the way we do it or I do it, you know, we actually, you know, we have those things on our radar screen. We work with them. We test and stress test our systems to that noise, right? And we're trying to become as insensitive as we possibly can to those type of of noise by exactly like you suggested. I like the I like the picture of that with that dimmer switch, right? By not being so digital, by not being like, you know, in or out, but having more of a smooth transitioning process as uh, as far as your positioning is concerned. I think where people really struggle with this idea is very often the proactive act of including more diversification inherently hurts your back test. So when people get started in this industry, what they tend to find is strategies that sound robust because they're simple, but we're actually the beneficiaries of positive luck. So I can point to a very real example. I'm not going to name the firm, but there's a very large ETF that applies trend following on U.S. equities. And this fall, they had an, a, they were 40 basis points away from changing their signal. Um, there's just basically one bad afternoon. And but because that afternoon turned out a little differently, their signal stayed positive, and they ended up having a very, very good Q4. Now, the question we need to ask ourselves is, well, are we going to credit them with having a good process? Or do we think that that was just luck? Because they would have had a very bad Q4 based on how their process works. They would have gotten really whipsawed if, they, if that single afternoon had turned out differently. And I think when you're looking at a 50-year backtest, it can be really hard to sort of extract for people who really don't dig into the, the weeds quantitatively. It's hard for them to extract that impact of luck. But very often when I'm evaluating other people's strategies, you can see that it, they're saying this is simple and therefore robust. But what I see is this is simple and therefore was the beneficiary of tailwinds from luck. And we didn't recognize it was just luck and that if things have been slightly different, this would not look nearly as good. And so what happens is when you start to incorporate these different models and diversification across multiple assets and diversification across when you rebalance, it typically hurts a backtest. Um, when you take a naive back test and do that, but you see a dispersion in terminal wealth go way down. And so I think it makes it a much, much more reliable back test than it otherwise would have been. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. Let's, uh, let's stick with the, um, the topic of risk for just one or two more minutes before we let you off the risk hook, so to say. But one of the things that I found in, um, in one of your documents and, and which I'd like you to explain a bit more about is, um, let me just quote that. It says, you prioritize downside, parentheses, drawdown, risk management above everything else. So I was I was wondering, well, how do you do this in practice, actually? Because it sounds a little bit like the holy grail there. In my personal experience, I mean, this is a byproduct of trend following. The personal experience is that, you know, we have to accept the drawdown, have to accept the loss and live through it. Um, because that's the byproduct of our robust trading system for the long run. But, you know, so managing the drawdown and avoiding the drawdown and, and focusing on that is kind of like something that I'm not sure if that would work very well with trend following. So I would actually argue and say that's exactly what trend following does. That isn't to say that trend following as a strategy doesn't have its own idiosyncratic drawdown that it creates. But when you apply trend following on top 
of an existing asset, right? So you're applying this mechanical strategy on top of U.S. equities or on top of rates or currencies or commodities. You are ultimately trying to adjust the return distribution. And so what you tend to see is almost all of these assets have a large negative skew, right? The expected positive return premium that you're going to earn from holding fixed income or holding equities comes from the fact that there's these large negative outliers that you're subjecting yourselves to. Again, just buy and hold really just means you're an insurance company, you're warehousing risk for someone and you're going to earn a slight premium. Now it's a very lumpy premium, but when those risks come around, you're going to feel the losses from the person who didn't want to hold that security. Not necessarily as true with with currencies and commodities. I, I think there's a lot more nuance there, but at least we can talk about stocks and bonds in this way. Trend following just mechanically, right? We all sort of know it's going to cut your losers short and let your winners run. And so what that does is it takes a positive convex profile and overlays it on this, this sort of negative skew and creates a much higher quality of return for investors, in my opinion. And what it ends up looking like is you end up almost giving up your best years to get rid of your worst years. Your left tails are cut off and simultaneously your right tails are cut off and you actually end up with a return profile that uh, when you run it through looks much more normal. doesn't mean that you've eliminated volatility, it just looks a whole lot more normal. And in doing so, uh, I at least have the belief that in reducing that risk, you help converge your long-term geometric returns towards that sort of long-term average arithmetic return. Um, that those average returns, annual returns that you see over time are more achievable because you're not realizing this big negative volatility drag. And this is almost simultaneously benefiting those people who are more subject to that large drawdown risk in retirement. So I actually think trend following does exactly this concept. Okay, just a little bit of technical issues there. So uh, if you're listening to this, it might, uh, might sound a little bit funny, but now we're going to jump into the um, next question I wanted to ask you about, Corey. And it's a little bit about time frame, um, but in a slightly different way. And I, I wonder whether you've uh, given this some thought uh, and maybe also how you uh, deal with that, in particular when it comes to clients. So my my, my, my question relates to the fact that if, um, I mean, you live in a very nice place in, in California. So if, uh, if the weather is, say, sunny today and, and I ask you, you know, what do you think the, the weather is going to be tomorrow? You probably say, well, it's going to be sunny. And, um, but if I asked you, so what's going to happen in the markets tomorrow, you might say, I have no idea what's going to happen. You know, it depends on who's tweeting or whatever. Um, but then if we, expand the time frame and ask you, what do you think the weather's going to be in 10 years? You probably say, I have no idea. Um, but if I asked you about where the stock market's going to be, you might say, actually, it's going to be higher. Or if you think about trend following performance of a manager, for example, 10 years from now, well, the results should be, we should have accumulated more returns 10 years from now. So there's this funny... Um, um, uh, negative correlation or whatever, however we phrase it, about you know certain things in life in terms of time frame, how we think about it. Um, something is easier in in our world to to predict long term, 
Um, and some things that uh, we find pretty uh, normal in life is much easier to predict short term. Is this something that you think about in the way you communicate uh, with investors? And of course, the goal being that we really want them to stay with these investments as hard as they are to stay with. We want them to stay with it for 10, 15, 20 years, um, you know. Yeah, I get I get what you're saying. Communication, I think, is a really important topic, probably one that doesn't get enough discussion in the investment industry. Because to your point, alpha outperformance or, or even just whatever your performance objective is, is only really sustainable if the investor is sustainable. In other words, you can have a phenomenal investment strategy, but if investors are buying and selling in and out of that strategy, allocating, deallocating, because they can't stick with the process or the returns are too volatile, ultimately the investor returns are not going to match the investment returns. And I think a lot of that comes down to communication. I think with quants, sometimes that can be rather difficult. Uh, there is, I think, a very human bias for narrative and story. We really like storytelling. Um, it tends to be how we remember things. And quants very often don't have an outlook. We don't have a view. We follow our process. More often than not, we don't even know what's in our portfolios. Uh, certainly, that's, that tends to be very true for individual security factor folks who are just buying and selling baskets of stocks based on characteristics. And so we're not writing these long, flowery, quarterly commentaries about the companies that we hold and the uh, management teams we met and the wonderful glowing stories behind them. All we can really provide is attribution. But I do think there is opportunity for innovation there, where because we have a very, very systematic process, I do think there is opportunity for communication more graphically I think quants, because everything is systematic and disciplined, have the ability to decompose their portfolio, not into the very traditional um, attribution analysis of sort of asset allocation versus security contribution, but really break down, these are the steps that we take. This is the recipe. And here's how each part of the recipe contributed to the returns. And I think in doing so, despite the fact most people think quant is very black box, we can we can make it more transparent. And I think in making it more transparent and providing graphical representation as to where returns ultimately emerged from, I do think that that can take the place of this more narrative storytelling. But I do think it's very much an unsolved issue. I, for a long time, have not written quarterly commentaries. I think quarterly commentaries put too much focus on short-term performance, which I think any PM would tell you is mostly random anyway. Uh, it's only in outlier scenarios that you really have something meaningful to say. Uh, when I read other PM commentaries, it's sort of the same record on repeat every single quarter for a decade. Um, and so I think it is important to repeat the same message, but ultimately at the same time, I think it can actually do a disservice to talk too much about short-term results. So. I know myself personally, I have pivoted more to a methodology of trying to write less and graphically depict more and hopefully through the depiction of what's going on in the strategy, 
uh, more effectively communicate and get people to understand the process and buy into the process for the long term. And in doing so, hopefully make those results more sustainable for them. I mean, I think just before, uh, I know, Mart, you have a question uh, before we we wrap up today, but it kind of ties in perfectly with this thing about the fact that we all have to write on our documentation or past performance is not indicative of future returns, but everything we do or everything investors do uh, when they uh, look for managers and have to select them is probably just the opposite to some extent. Um, so it's, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. Uh, do you think past performance, by the way, is a guide? You know, it's a little funny because we all have the same disclosure. Past performance isn't indicative of future returns, but every single factor is based on the idea. Every single systematic investment strategy is based on the idea. I'm looking at this back test and I do think this, you know, sort of anomaly that I'm looking at will persist based on past returns. Um, You are ultimately, at the end of the day, when talking to clients, very often talking about your past results and clients are inherently trying to determine whether they think that that relative performance or absolute performance will persist based on your process. I think the important distinction here is performance alone is not sufficient. I, I often, I might be, I don't think I'm alone on this, um, but I actually prefer back tests and live periods that contain a bit of ugliness to them. Because I think if you build a back test or a systematic investment strategy that only ever looks good, you're missing information. You're missing information about the risks in the strategy when things go wrong. And so to me, when I see live performance, I get just as concerned by live performance that's a positive outlier as a negative outlier. If I see someone who is a value manager that had an outstanding year, when every other value manager had a really bad year, that concerns me because that implies style drift. So you do want this relative outperformance and this opportunity for alpha, but you also want to understand the process um, that someone's ultimately going through. So, So to me, there is always implicitly, there's always the tie between performance and process. But the more I can take the focus off of performance and retie it back to process, that's always where I want to anchor myself. Yeah, absolutely. Moritz, why don't you take it away for the last uh, couple of questions before we uh, we wrap up uh, today? Yeah, the last two. And, you know, um, we always ask our listeners and friends if they want to submit questions uh, for the show. And, you know, here's a big thank you because we've mentioned that you're going to be on, Kari, and we've received so many questions that, you know, we'll probably be speaking for another four hours if we wanted to ask them all. So, I'll pick two, which which I liked, and and the credit goes to to Christian from Scalable Capital, a robo advisor based in Germany. So uh, here goes the question: Many systematic trading strategies, for instance trend following, do rely on the historic data of the underlying asset only, omitting potentially external information from other assets. Do you think there is value in adding more sources of information, for instance the momentum of related assets, financial stability indicators, or macroeconomic data? really like this question because I, I think you can sort of take it two ways. I think ultimately you have to tie all of these indicators data back to your belief around what you're trying to capture. Um, so the question is, do you get a higher fidelity signal by including other information? So if we're doing trend following, 
is there a potential benefit to avoiding false trends and in incorporating some sort of economic or fundamental information? Uh, I think you're seeing right now a lot of trend followers are starting to incorporate more information about carry into their process uh, to try to account for that source of return. And the question ultimately becomes, in doing so, how much do you dilute your original signal? Um, do you remain style pure to what you were trying to do? And where's the risk trade-off? Are there environments that through incorporating these other signals, you might actually hurt your ability to, for example, follow trends because this signal is going to be giving a contradictory indicator in an environment that historically would have been good for trend following. So I think it's there's there's obviously this trade-off of pluses and minuses. The, the plus might be you get more information. It can enhance your uh, the efficacy of your signals in certain market environments, but it can also uh, muddy them and it can also degrade them in other environments. And so I think it, it comes back to this idea of risk isn't destroyed, it's only transformed. I think you can apply that here as well and, and say, depending on what you're trying to achieve and what your ultimate outcome is, um, it may apply, it may not. I think for someone who wants the pure benefits of mechanical trend following, incorporating other signals, while they might lead to more uh, stable return profiles may actually hurt trend following in the environments that you might want to be buying it for. So again, I think there are always these trade-offs that need to be considered. I should note that I, I tend to have a focus on when I think about combining signals, it is in um, more of a portfolio context. So I am more pro the approach of I'm going to build a portfolio based on one set of signals I'm going to build another portfolio based on another set of signals and combine those signals together to create that dimmer switch. There's another field of thought that says, let me take the two signals, bring them together and create only a single signal. And I think in doing that, um, you might enhance the information in that single signal, but you give up the potential diversification that comes from having multiple signals. And so I think that's another important trade-off you need to consider, which is how are you baking these multiple signals into the portfolio at the end of the day? Right. Interesting. All right. Here's the perfect question to wrap things up. And the credit goes to a good friend of mine, also named Moritz, by the way. And it's, you know, the, the key question, how do you invest personally, Corey? Does it all go into the ETFs uh, that you guys manage or is there anything else you do? This question gets me into a lot of trouble. Uh, because I've got I've got very specific views on this. So I am I, I need to start by saying that I am co-founder and fifty percent owner of the company that I uh, the asset management company that I run. Um, I have a tremendous amount of assets within that business invested in our strategies. So uh, whether they're seed accounts or things like that, we have a large amount of capital invested in our own strategies through there. I also have a large amount of assets invested in the strategies um, personally. So you can look up, you know, through our prospectus and, and SAI, how much I actually have personally invested in the different funds. And I think it's important that, that the chef does eat their own cooking. But I also, again, going back to this core concept of risk, it's never sat well with me that a PM should be 100% invested in their own strategies, particularly if, if they are not meant to be strategies that would be 100% of someone's portfolio. When I look at my total personal balance sheet, when I look at my mix of human capital 
and personal capital, I am highly, highly levered to the market. Not just the market, I'm highly levered to my own investment strategies. My entire last decade has been spent trying to build a business that generates revenue, not only through market exposure, but through our our approach to getting market exposure through the investment strategies we have. So if I were to then not only have all my human capital highly levered to that, but also have all my investment capital invested in those strategies, to me, that would be the sign of someone who really doesn't understand risk all that well. That if I'm thinking of personally diversifying myself, it doesn't make a tremendous amount of sense for me to be so highly levered personally um, from the type of revenue that the business generates and my, and my illiquid capital, as well as having all my liquid capital tied up in it. So I do think it's important that I do eat my own cooking, but I use my own strategies very much uh, in the same way I advocate for others, particularly others who are of my own age. So I'm in my early 30s. It may not be appropriate for me to have more conservative strategies uh, as heavily weighted in my portfolio. So I do have... Um, just to sort of round it out, what's the picture look like? I probably have about 50% of my portfolio in sort of long only high quality equity names. I have a little bit of private equity investment that I've done, um, which is you can sort of just think of as a levered equity investment. I have a suite of multi-asset strategies that I invest in. So that would be some of our own multi-asset strategies as well as other sort of credit-based strategies that represents another sleeve. I have another sleeve um, that's more trend-following strategies, so a mix of multi-asset um, CTA-type strategies as well as our own trend equity strategies. And then finally, I have uh, some fixed income that I just have in there as a buffer because, again, I think I'm so highly levered to the market on the illiquid human capital side of things that I actually like to carry around probably more f- traditional treasury fixed income safety assets uh, than someone else my age probably should, but only because when I look at that total balance sheet, I've got so much exposure to the market pretty much everywhere else in my life. Got it. Thank you. Very interesting. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Now, before we uh, wrap up, let me just do as, as we normally do here, just uh, go through and see where the uh, indices for CTAs um, you know, left uh, Thursday evening. So this is as of Thursday night. Uh, the BTOP 50 index is up 1.5% roughly, uh, plus 4.73 for the year. The SuckGen CTA index up 1.79% uh, for the month of June so far, up 4.04 for the year. SockGen Trend Index, uh, plus 209 for the month, uh, plus six and three quarters for the year. And the Short-Term Traders Index up uh, 108 uh, and uh, down still for the year, down three quarters of a percent. And the Bridge Alternatives Index um, up 1.53 for the month and up 5.41 for the year. Now, as usual, please keep sending your questions to us at info at toptradersonplug.com. Corey, thank you ever so much for spending your Saturday morning uh, with us. We really appreciate it and I'm sure our listeners do as well and it's absolutely as inspirational to hear your voice as it is to read your tweets and your research papers. So that was a real uh, treat for us. Um, And uh, maybe you can share with our audience What's the best place for them to uh, to keep track of you, so to speak, and and learn more? 
Well, first, let me say, by start by saying thank you guys so much for having me on. It's, it's a real pleasure. It's a great conversation. Really enjoyed. Uh, if people want to learn a little bit more, they can find me on Twitter uh, under the handle C Hofstein. Uh, I have a a weekly research commentary I write that you can find. Um, I link to it via Twitter, but also you can go to our blog, blog.thinknewfound.com. And I also have my own podcast. Season two is coming out in hopefully about a month. And the podcast name is Flirting with Models. <laughs> Great name. I like that. Um, and also for all of uh, our listeners out there, if uh, you wouldn't mind, please share this with a friend. And if you would really make us happy, take two minutes out, leave us a five-star rating and review if you think we deserve it, of course, as it makes a huge difference uh, in where we show up in the podcast rankings. So we really would appreciate this. From Corey, Moritz and me, thanks ever so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you next week. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.